every time that you create a system in your business that allows you to generate revenue, it's time to pass that off to somebody. If you're doing things that don't build your business, then you just own a full-time job. That's the voice of Jonathan Katz-Moses, owner of Katz-Moses Tools, and I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project, to getting paid, to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Jonathan Katz-Moses, owner of the Santa Barbara, California-based company, Katz-Moses Tools. Jonathan is a serial entrepreneur, starting his first business at 14. And since then, he's had a lot of time to think on what it takes to start and correctly operate a business. Along with running his other ventures, Jonathan founded a furniture company that eventually turned into the tool company, which he owns today. But whether we're talking about the practices he used in his furniture business back then, or how he runs his tool company now, the one constant is this, Jonathan knows business. Follow along as we talk about how to get your foot in the door with clients, how you can turn your social media into furniture sales, what it takes to be a great boss, and much more. We have a lot to talk about in this episode, so let's jump right in and hear about how Jonathan runs his businesses in his own words. My parents were not people who worked with their hands. They were both in business. My mom ran a hospital and my dad uh, worked in tech. And so for me, I was never really exposed to power tools. And I still remember the first time I was, which I was about 14. And uh, one of our neighbors had a shop in his garage and he invited me in and he built custom car stereo speakers. And I was absolutely just enthralled by the process. And so I started getting into building custom speakers. I started a business out of my parents' garage installing car stereos. And it was just a, a serious passion of mine to be able to build things. But, you know, I moved down to Santa Barbara, California, right out of high school and just so expensive to live here that I never had a house with a garage. So it was years before I got back into building things. Uh, but I started a construction company that was doing framing and concrete. And, and so I, I got sort of the rough carpentry side of it. But then when I left that company in 2014, I had a roommate who was building something for his girlfriend for Christmas. And he asked me to help him because I had a bunch of tools. And so I jumped in to help him. And I remember he, he was a cab driver. He had to go to work that night. And I said, do you care if I, I keep working on it? And he's like, no, no, go ahead. And so I ran off to Home Depot and got a bunch of tools. And by the time he got home at three in the morning, I was still in the garage working on it. And I realized I was like, this is what I want to do. And I instantly got into sort of acquiring tools and learning things I wanted to do. Uh, I saw a video by Matt Kenny of MEK Woodworks. And this was when he was working for Fine Woodworking of him making a jewelry box with dovetails. And I thought dovetails were the coolest looking thing I'd ever seen. And so that's, I instantly, that's what I started learning to do. And that's, I didn't, it wasn't too long after that, that I invented the Cat's Moses magnetic dovetail jig. And then after I created that dovetail jig, I started making different uh, iterations of it and, you know, combining four jigs into two and then two into one. And I realized this was like a really cool product and I needed a way to market it. And, you know, I left my construction company, uh, didn't have really any money to put into advertising. And so I was like, I'll, I'll start a YouTube channel. I'll put a couple of videos up about this. And so I started a YouTube channel kind of to share videos with my friends and family about what I was doing, uh, but also to sort of create videos about this product I had created. And I started doing it. And one of my first videos I published was like a minute and 29 second overview of this, what I called a man box at the time. It was like, you know, had spaces for watches or a pocket knife and it had a secret compartment and it got like 15,000 views and I had all these nice comments and people were like, that's beautiful. And I was like, man, I really enjoy this. I really enjoy this feedback and being part of a community. And I've always really loved teaching. And 
So for me, it was like sort of a match made in heaven where I could sort of share my journey and what I was learning. And at that time, I'd had a ton of rough carpentry experience, but the fine finish part of this was pretty new to me. And so I felt like I was coming from a place of somebody who kind of knew about woodworking, but could also share the tips and tricks I had learned as a beginner to sort of help people grow their own craft. And that became sort of part of my sort of genre. I think, you know, in the beginning when I was doing this, there wasn't a ton of woodworking channels. This was 2015. I posted my first video, I think. And, you know, there was Stumpy Dubs and the Wood Whisperer and David Picciuto and, you know, Bob Claggett, but there, there wasn't, it wasn't like it is today. And so these guys were pumping out build videos every week. And I sort of started to figure out that I wanted to teach technique. And I started talking about different tools and techniques. And of course I did build videos as well. Uh, but I really, what gave me the most enjoyment was really teaching. And so it was really fun to do those videos. And I think that sort of positioned me as somebody who could have credibility in this industry. You know, I never took sponsorships. Uh, so it allowed me to sort of talk from a place of, of objectivity and share things I'd learned and tools I liked. And, and it really helped position me to build the tool company that I have now. And Cat's Moses Tools, which we sort of, it used to be Cat's Moses Woodworking, but we relaunched about eight weeks ago as Cat's Moses Tools with the mission of uh, distributing and developing tools. Uh, both my own, we're working with other content creators. We're sort of helping other content creators it, Developing tools is a very, has very high barrier to entry. And so, you know, it's very expensive. There's so many steps of prototyping and, and working with different manufacturers and different materials. And we now have a lot of experience doing that. I have a full-time product development team. Uh, and so we work with other content creators to help them bring their good ideas to market. It allows us to sort of break down the, the, the walls and, and the, the hard part about creating a product. And it also allows us to, you know, create a store where it plays on that lack of corporate influence I've had over the years and say like, look, if it's in here, I really believe in it. There is no BS in my store and it's, there's no fluff. And these are all tools that I think you will love and enjoy and that are in my shop today, tools that I use and love. And that's really done well for us. It's, it's been great. I think we've had a really good community response. Uh, we put out a newsletter every week that it highlights small creators. We have a charity called the Cats Moses Woodworkers with Disabilities Fund, uh, where we help people with disabilities, mental, physical, veterans, uh, get the resources they need to, to start woodworking or, or sort of help in, you know, embolden their woodworking. And woodworking has been proven to increase self-confidence. Uh, it really helps people in recovery. It's like therapy for PTSD and really helps people who are sort of having a rough time feel good about themselves by creating things, whether, you know, and that applies to any sort of making, leatherworking, um, you know, woodworking, metalworking, all of those things have been proven to be good forms of therapy. So uh, sort of the Cats Moses group, which is the parent company owns Cats Moses Tools. Uh, we have the Cats Moses Woodworkers with Disabilities Fund. And uh, we've sort of put those two together. And so that's sort of where we are today. And that's kind of how my journey has played out to get to here. I could listen to you talk about, about your journey all day, honestly, because you've gone through a lot of different iterations of the standard, quote unquote, woodworker or woodworker. Right. And, and that's why I wanted to have you on because... I talk a lot on this show about how there's not one right way to start a furniture company and there's not one way, one right way to start a business. You know, one thing I forgot to mention in there is yep. that, and you know, while I was starting to post videos on YouTube, I was taking any sort of commission work I could do. I was refinishing tables at restaurants, building sheds, putting up fences, uh, basically taking any kind of work that involved woodworking so that I could buy tools and grow my business. You know, when I started, I was working out a nine by 12 shed that had no power. I had to run extension cords from the house out to the shed and I packed it full of tools. You know, I had a saw stop in there, I had a 14 inch bandsaw, a jet 
2244 drum sander. I had a planer. Uh, I had a little six inch jointer and I just had them all jangled in there on, on mobile bases so that I could like pull out the tool I needed. And I'd run boards from the shed had two doors on opposite sides. So I'd position the tool so I could run boards from the outside to the inside and then outside again. And I just made it work. And that's when the channel started to see some success. Uh, I started to get more commissions and I, I moved into my first 700 square foot shop. Uh, and then finally ended up in the shop you see our channel in today that's now we've expanded. It's about 5,000 square feet and it holds our shop. Uh, we have three lasers, three CO2 lasers. Uh, we have two giant CNC machines uh, and that's where we manufacture a lot of our tools. Uh, tools we get manufactured elsewhere, you know, we laser engrave them or clean them up on the router table, those kind of things. You know, we have 15 employees, about seven of them are in the shop, another eight work remote. Um, we have a product development team, uh, a content team that helps manage the blog and, and all of the charity. Um, and then we have our manufacturing and distribution team. Out of all the impressive stuff that you just mentioned, the one thing that sticks in my head is you in that first shop and you have a 14 foot board that you need to plane and you put it in on one side. And then instead of walking around the planer to get it, you have to run around your entire shop to go to yep. the door on the other side just to grab it and that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty funny picture and and definitely is much different of a concept of how you're running a business than you are today so that is that is the beginning to today which is what i really want to talk to you about where where you took your business and People who have been listening to this show for a while know that this is the part of the show where I talk about how, how you got into your business and those first steps and moving into making a successful furniture company. But for you, I want to talk about something a, a little bit different. Now, I know the show is called Building a Furniture Brand, and it's not called Getting Out of Building Furniture, but that's kind of what you did. You were building furniture and you saw that that path wasn't for you and i want to talk about when you knew it was the right time to get out of the business and move on to something else that you might have liked more you might have enjoyed more was more profitable felt like it had more of a runway because there's a lot of people who have been doing this for a while and they love the idea of furniture making but maybe not the idea of having a furniture company, but they're so embedded in their ways that they think this is what I have to do. And they run it into the ground and they don't realize that there's so many different offshoots to having a furniture company that you can take. So because it was definitely a very aha moment when you first realized you wanted to build furniture, you saw the tools, you were like, this is what I want to do. And you spent those late nights and you, you put in that time, but then there must've been another time when you realized this is not for me anymore. I need to do something else. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good point. Um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I think people who are starting a business make is they compare themselves to others and they look at, other people's businesses. And in, in our industry, I feel like, you know, it's very visual that you can see what other people are doing. You look at these content creators uh, who have big channels and you see what they're doing and you think, okay, I need to take this path to be successful. And I was, I had moments like that where I was, you know, looking at these other content creators and going, okay, I need to put out a build every single week. I need to take sponsorships. I need to work with these companies. And that's how I become successful. And then, you know, as I was building this furniture and trying to put out videos, I realized I'm doing commission work on the side. Not all of these builds make good videos. So I'm not doing a build video for everything I make. I'm spending time editing. I'm doing all these things that take so much of my time. It's not really generating revenue. And clearly people really like when I put out these videos that are more educational and not just a whole build. And so there was an aha moment. I, I think the video was called Superior Accuracy in Woodworking on my channel. And I put out a video about all the different measuring and marking tools I use. I did tips and tricks and it did really well. It did better than any video I had put out before that. And I realized I said, okay, so people are really hungry for learning about 
the intricacies of using tools. And then that sort of led me down the road of, okay, well, building commissions gets in the way of that. And so at 10,000 subs, I took a huge risk and I hired an editor. I stopped taking commission work. So I basically cut out most of my revenue. I had the dovetail jig that I was selling at that time. I had gone on David Picciuto's channel. He let me do a collaboration with him, which I definitely credit him with sort of launching my career in that sense. I got a lot of visibility and it was an awesome experience for me. Um, so I was selling, you know, dovetail jigs, but I was making them by hand prior to being on David Picciuto's. I was making them out of wood. Uh, and when I went on David Picciuto's, I just switched to a new material. It was uh, the same material that pool balls are made out of. It's a two-part urethane. Uh, so they're very durable, very hard. I realized, I said, okay, I'm not making a profit, but I see a runway here. I see a path to profitability. And the only way to do that is to free up my time to do things that generate the business revenue. So I need to cut out editing. I need to cut out filming because that takes more than half my time. And I need to cut out manufacturing, which I had done by creating this new um, material and having somebody uh, funny, the dovetail jigs made five miles from my shop. Um, and I need to develop ways for people to to learn about good tools, to get good tools. And this is the business I want to build. And so very quickly, I hired my editor, Mark, who is still with me today. He's my right-hand man. This guy is a genius. Mark, if you're listening, thank you for everything. Um, and he came on and he changed how good my content was. Suddenly we went from, you know, my terrible filming and editing to really professional looking stuff. So now we have the credibility uh, and, and I think this translates to anyone building a business in your marketing material, you know, putting out stuff that doesn't put your best foot forward just makes, it, it doesn't give a good first impression. And so when suddenly people are coming to my channel and seeing that I have very, you know, 4k video, it's well edited, there's, you know, good music to the beat, all of those things, very much like how you do your, your videos on Instagram. Well, thank you. Uh, that, that means a lot coming from you. I really do appreciate it. Uh, you know, good, high quality stuff that uh, sort of conveys a message of, of uh, good source of information. And then we're able to translate that into recommending tools without taking sponsorship dollars. So we made money off affiliate links, of course. But again, you have to recommend good stuff because if somebody goes and buys something you recommend and they don't like it, then they're going to go, I never trust this guy again. So you get a one time, you know, 2% commission. But they never come back and click one of your links. So you need to make sure you're recommending awesome stuff uh, that really works. And then that translated for me into more ideas. I came up with the no deflection stop block, which is our number one seller. We put that out. That took about a year to develop. And when we launched that, uh, it really, that was the aha moment where it was like, oh man, this is my second product's doing really well. We now have two products that are, are selling. Like I really need to get into this more. Uh, and that's when we started buying manufacturing equipment, like the lasers and the CNC machines. We could manufacture things like templates. So I started making templates. I make them for my company as well as lots of other YouTubers, and we drop ship them for them. Um, we make jigs, and that allowed us to manufacture either one-off things to see if they were, you know, people liked them. You know, we'd, sometimes we'd make templates, and they sold five or six, and it was like, okay, well, that was a dud. But Occasionally we do one, like my dovetail alignment board, for example, that thing sells like hotcakes. It's a really great little jig for helping you align the marking out of your dovetails. It works great. People love it. So that's been something we've sold for years. Point is that you sort of, just like making furniture where you come up with a design and see if it's popular, you know, a cutting board design or a chair, or, you know, I'm sure Ethan, you have several staple products in your business that work really well uh, with your regular client base. It's like, building up a base revenue stream that you can count on is the key to growing a successful business. You create these, these things that don't take any more of your time. You develop them all the way and then you pass those systems off to other people in your organization and say, okay, you know, make these as they come through. And then you start working on more things and more things that you're trying, more designs. And you try those out and you pick, you know, I can, I'm sure every business owner can tell you that it's like one out of 10 ideas works. And, but then you get to add that to the stable revenue stream and you slowly build that up um, without, you know, creating an operating capital problem by investing in too many things. You try a few things out at a time 
And then eventually you've got a whole stable of things that just generate revenue for you. And whether that's a furniture business or a business like mine, where you're distributing tools, the more stable products you have, the more risks you can take and the faster you can grow. And I think that the aha moment for me when I developed that stop block was, okay, I need to really focus on two things. One is ensuring my credibility stays intact so that people trust me to, to recommend tools that I make or recommend tools that I carry. Uh, and then also really dive into this product development thing. And with any risk, you need to take on more overhead. So, you know, we hired product development team to help me take ideas to market and help other content creators with theirs. We're about to add another 150 SKUs to our store that are actually en route to my shop right now. And uh, by the end of this year, we should have about 250, 300 tools in our store. Uh, and so that's, you know, kind of where I'm at today, ending 2021 during the starting a distribution company during the worst shipping and supply line crisis of all time has been very interesting. But we've found that working with companies that manufacture in America or manufacture their own things have been really beneficial to our business. Now, I can just imagine people who are listening saying, yeah, he makes great tools, but what does that have to do with furniture? What does that have to do with why I'm tuning into this podcast? And I'm sitting here listening to everything you're saying, and I encourage everybody who is listening to go back and listen to that again. And every time you say tools, switch it out with furniture or switch it out with cutting boards or switch it out with small home goods or switch it out with something that you make because the business practices that you're using could be so easily switched to manufacturing a furniture line. And yes, there's a lot of different ways to run a business, but at the heart of it, there are core principles that you really need to hone in on to make sure your business is running smoothly. And some of those are making a quality product, which you talked about, being a trusted name as a company. So people want to stand behind the product that you make, the furniture that you make. They understand that you're going to deliver exactly what they have ordered from you. But there's also other things like attention to detail as your company grows. And that's a part of a business that a lot of people lose because when they start their company, it's small, it's one or two people. But as they start to scale, as they switch from a lifestyle business into a manufacturing business, there's a lot more moving parts. So can you talk about how you scaled from what you were doing in the beginning to the large manufacturing company with 15 employees, over 200 SKUs. How did you scale your company, but still keep the attention to detail? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. And I think that, you know, I let me break this down in a way of how I built my furniture business before it became a tool company. Um, I think the biggest part, what has worked for me throughout the course of this career is the key here to anybody starting a business is credibility. And that doesn't mean having a YouTube channel where people trust you. What that means is creating trust in your customer. And so when you're building a furniture business, you nobody is going to buy a $10,000 table from a guy with two pictures on, you know, in his portfolio and they just met. And so the way to gain that credibility is you need to take the jobs that maybe are way below your skill level, but gets you in the right place, right? So that means taking jobs like base and case, you know, go talk to contractors or architects or designers and say, hey, you know what? I'm a great finished carpenter. I make furniture. That's my passion. But you know what else I'm really good at? Hanging doors, putting base and case, doing window bucks, uh, whatever that is, get me on the job site. And then you, the finished carpenter, solve all these little problems over the course of a construction project and the mistakes the electrician makes and the mistakes the drywaller makes and the uneven walls, the framers, you came in and you fixed that. And now you have this credibility with the client, the contractor, the designer, the architect. And now this house is done, right? Now, what does that person need in their house? Furniture. Hey, by the way, all that fabulous work you just saw me do, you should see my furniture. And now there's your $10,000 table or your 
$2,000 coffee table, there's your passion projects. And that's how, now you've done that once or twice. And now you have a stable of architects and contractors who believe in you. Uh, maybe you have a helper working for you and you developed that credibility. Um, one of my favorite people to get advice on this subject from is Mike Farrington. He's a phenomenal YouTuber, but more importantly, he's been a lifelong woodworker and he still makes a living doing commission work. And that is always his advice to people is focus on building the credibility with clientele and then you will get the jobs you want. And that means you take, you know, stuff like building a shed or, you know, doing a, a patio gazebo, whatever it is, stuff that is more a little bit towards the rougher side of carpentry, but gets you in the door. And then eventually after doing that for a while, you now have a portfolio of all these great pieces you've built. And suddenly you don't have to take those, those jobs that you don't want anymore. And you have a backlog of clients who want you to build these great pieces of furniture. But it's really important to remember that when you're starting out, you may be capable of making these things, but you just need to prove it to people and they just need to trust you and they need that credibility. And so that works that's with my business, with any furniture brand. And then once you start to grow, you build in the automation, right? You create that, like I was talking about with tools, you create that stable source of revenue. And maybe that's a signature cutting board or a signature chair that you always make that people are really into. Something that's maybe not your top dollar selling item, but it's your top dollar volume selling item. And you have this stable source of revenue that gets you in the door with people and says, oh, if you love that, you should see my dining tables. You should see my dining chairs. You should see you know, my patio furniture, whatever it is you love to build. And you build that credibility. And then every time that you create a system in your business that allows you to generate revenue, it's time to pass that off to somebody who can handle that for you. Because if you're doing things that don't build your business, then you just own a full-time job. And so you need to automate the things that you've already created the systems for. You know, if that's, you're pumping out 20 cutting boards a month, you got a guy who knows exactly how to mill them and glue them up. And then, you know, maybe you're the guy who comes in and finishes them or whatever. Um, but you've created, you've automated a system, created a a stable source of revenue, and you can focus on new business and building new clientele. And that's how you scale. Scaling is all about automating processes so that you can focus on bringing in new business. I love that you talked about going to a designer and and doing their, you know, doing their install work, doing stuff like that, and and really being hands-on because, and I know it sounds ridiculous talking to a content creator and saying this, but people forget when they're starting their company that almost all of the furniture they're going to sell in the beginning is gonna be local, is gonna be people who are close to you. And everybody now thinks, okay, I'm gonna build a business, what's the first thing I'm gonna do? I'm gonna build a social media presence. And that's great, and that's great for getting credibility and having a portfolio out there, but look at the posts that you put out there. If you're getting thousands of likes on something, but all of them are different parts of the country, they're in different countries, they're all over the world, that's not going to help you sell your custom pieces in the town that you live in. So right. making that, that personal connection is, yes, yes, the social media part's important, and yes, that helps to get your name out there and it's a good portfolio, but making that personal connection is something that people forget about sometimes when they're starting a business. There's a whole big world out there, but you need to focus on where your where your money's going to come from, where your first jobs are going to come from. And before you take over the world with your furniture, you need to have a good foundation and a good place to start. And the other thing that I really liked is you talking about making that staple piece, that, that piece that, you know, I call the hang your hat on piece where you come into the shop every morning and you know when you turn the lights on you have a product that you can hang your hat on and you know that that product is going to be what makes money for you that day and that's your your backbone of your business so that's really important to have that working in the background yeah absolutely so in, in fact Ethan, you know when you were talking about how to like build that that base clientele that base revenue you know i owned two other businesses in my adult life. One of them was a Christmas light installation company I started when I was 19. And I owned it for 17 years, 18 years. I sold it in 2018. 
Uh, and it was very big. You know, we did big shopping centers. We, we did uh, lights all over the central coast of California. But the way that I got into that business when I first started was I went around to very popular restaurants and I said, hey, I will do your Christmas lights for free if you let me put cards up at the hostess stand because people are coming in at night at dinner time when lights are up and they look gorgeous. And then they can see that card right when they check in. It says, hey, you know, Jonathan Katz Moses, Santa Barbara Christmas lights. And they can give me a call. And that was how I built the business. Same thing we're talking about the furniture. My construction company, uh, same thing. When I left that company, we had about 30 employees uh, and we did you know, big developments, but we started with a pickup truck and a set of tools. And so when I started that business, I did the same thing. I figured out that you could go to the city planner and find out which permits had just been filed. So you know that those are done plans that are waiting permit. And you can call those contractors that are listed on those plans and say, hey, I'm a framer let me frame this project for you. Or, hey, I do concrete, let me do the concrete. And you get in right at the bid process. And it's all about finding ways to find your clientele when they're in that buying decision mode, right? So with a furniture business, when I talked about reaching out to designers or contractors in the finish phase of their project, that's when you're getting to clientele right when they are ready to make buying decisions on further pieces of furniture or you know, stocking up their kitchen items, all those things. And that's a really important part about building a new business is getting that base revenue in there and, and getting a stable of clients that uh, are going to call you on a regular basis. There's a line that goes through all these different businesses that you've had. And yes, the success and the the business practices and getting in on the getting in, in the ground floor and 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 having credibility is all something that you follow through with each of the businesses. But another thing that I keep hearing is employees and having employees at the Christmas tree lights, having 15 employees now, having employees in the construction business and all that. And, and employees is something that that is a whole new world for a furniture maker and for a business owner in general, because people forget that their job was to make furniture to start a furniture company. And then when they bring employees on, their job is to be a boss. Their job is different. Their job is to be the boss of that person. And they're no longer only a furniture builder that they were for so long. And the way they became successful enough to have employees is not their job anymore. They are now, their job description has changed. Their right. job is now the boss. Yes, I think this is one of the most crucial things to learn. Now, as a lifelong entrepreneur, I started my first business at 14. I haven't had a boss in my life since I was 22. I'm about to turn 40. Um, I have been everything from a bad manager to a good manager. And it is a skill uh, that is on par with building furniture. You have to practice it. You have to practice good aspects of management. And I think if I could give any advice to people in regarding employees, there's two things. One, employees are the best investment you can make. Uh, it allows you to work on the things that generate your business revenue. But the operative word there, the key point is investment. Investing in people, their education, their empowerment is so important. Empowering employees to make good decisions is the most important thing. You cannot be a micromanager. Nobody likes a manager who's always over their shoulder. So that's what I mean by investment. You teach your employees how to do something. You let them find, say, you show the goal. Here is the end result I need from you. Here is how I do it. How you get there is up to you. And if you have a problem, come to me. And if you can do that effectively, you will generate employees that are with you for a long time, who like what they do and enjoy their enjoy their employment with you. And you can never expect an employee to care as much about your business as you do. And if you make that mistake and expect them, you know, to, hey man, I'm here on Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Why aren't you? You'll you'll never succeed with employees. You need to respect their boundaries, their personal life, encourage them to have healthy lives outside of your business. But while they're there, you empower them to make good decisions and create excellent work. And I think that comes from a boss who understands that it's a team effort and that they are valuable to you and they are not just your employee. Oh, they work for me. I can boss them around and yell at them or do those kind of things. No, you need to work with, you know, everybody's personality is different, but you need to find the way that helps them succeed. And if they fail, that's your fault. 
And any failure your employee makes is on you. It's because you didn't train them enough. Uh, you didn't create enough of a communication rapport with them so that they can come to you with issues. And when you invest in them and invest in their training and education, you will get phenomenal results and it will free you up from doing the things that don't build your business uh, and allow you to, to generate revenue and work on new streams of clientele and revenue coming into your business. What you said there, where if they're not working out, then it's a failure on your part. Yes, there the yes, there is an asterisk to that, that there are bad employees. And I'm not saying that every employee you get, if they don't work out, it's your fault, but you have to take the responsibility on yourself as the company owner, because I hear this so many times where people who are starting out, they've put everything they've put their entire life force into this company and then they bring an employee on and they're like this employee doesn't care as much about the business as i do and i have to say of course they don't they haven't been there those late nights they haven't been there for those years when you're building it it's not their passion it is their job and you're their boss so you always need to remember that you need to not only share the passion that you have for the job, but also understand that that passion is yours and you need to figure out a way to either share that passion with your employee or take a step back and realize that it's their job and they don't have to love the company as much as you do. They just have to do a good job and that's the reason they're there. Correct. And I think what is... Like you said, there are outliers. Of course, I've had, you know, bad employees where it was like, oh, man, this guy didn't, you know, show these things in his first week or his job interview that are completely insane and it didn't work out. That's that's one thing. But if, for example, in my current company, we have 15 employees and I've only ever lost one employee in the last seven years. So everybody I've brought on is still with me. And that's because I think I create a place for them to succeed. And in fact, uh, my office manager, Alex, is one of, he's like a perfect example of recognizing someone was really intelligent. He had no experience in shipping things or woodworking, um, but I saw that he was a really intelligent guy. And so he came on, I said, look, right now we are a young startup. I can't pay you what this job is worth yet, but I promise you that I will always take care of you. Uh, if you invest in learning about this job. And he did, he's run with it. He's now runs my whole office. He's never had to ask for a raise. I give him raises as the company grows, he grows. And that's always my rule with my guys. As I grow, you grow, I promise you, I will never shortchange you. Uh, and I will always empower you to make good decisions. You can always tell me better ways to do things. I'm always open to listening. You tell me if I'm making a mistake, please tell me. Cause I, you know, I'm a great woodworker, but I'm not great at shipping. I didn't know how to do that. You know, I'm not great at logistics. I, I, that's not something I've done in my life, but I learned and I learned with my guys. And I said, look, here's the goal I want. I want customers to get products fast. I want them to be happy. I want good customer service. You figure out how to do it and I'll let you own that part of your job. And that makes such a difference with employees uh, than saying, no, do it this way. Oh, you, you know, oh, I like to do that with my left hand or here, use these scissors, you know, like, come on, nobody, no human being is that dumb that they can't figure it out. And so letting them succeed on their own is such a fantastic way of managing. And I'm telling you, Ethan, I used to be bad at it, man. I used to think that I needed to manage every single aspect of it in my lights company. You know, I was young, I was 19 when I started that company and I'd stand there at the job sites watching everything my guys did. Oh no, no, that looks bad. Oh, fix this, fix, oh my God, what an a-hole. You know, like I didn't know any better. And now as I get, as I got older, I realized when I empowered these guys and I left the job site, I hired a manager like, hey man, I just want these lights to look good. Here's how I do it. If you have a better way, go for it. My business increased five times that year. Cause you know what I was out doing? I was out selling. I was out doing estimates. I was out getting more work and making sure those guys had a job to go to after the one they just finished. And you have to learn how to let go because like you were talking about, this is your passion. And that's the reason that you get to make the boss money, right? Cause you took the risk. You spent the years not taking a paycheck. You put in the investment 
but these guys get to come in and help you build. And if you can step back and let them do that, you will reap rewards like you have never seen because now you have a team of people who likes to be there. And like you said, they may not love it like you do, but they like their job because their boss is nice and lets them make decisions. And that's the key to any sort of mental health in a job, in a workplace environment is feeling like you get to make decisions. And there's tons of studies out there that show, you know, offering somebody a $2 raise is not going to make them a good employee. It's not going to make them work harder, but allowing them to make decisions and create things they can be proud of on their own is what makes a difference. And that's what gives people good quality of uh, good job satisfaction. And, you know, I think that when you learn how to do that, you learn how to let go of the things that maybe you don't need to be doing. I think you, that's when your business really goes. And every time I've hired an employee, my business has like quadrupled because I was able to pass off things that I had already automated and work on new things. It's hard to let go. And I know that you're saying that as somebody who has had this experience, who's been doing this for a long time and has overcome that, that mental roadblock of now I can trust my baby to somebody else. And it's not something that you should do on the first day. When you have an employee on the first day and you bring them in the shop, you shouldn't leave. You shouldn't just walk out the door. And I'm saying physically and also mentally, you shouldn't check out. You need to be able to build that confidence before you can let go. And letting go is important. It definitely is. But build that confidence in the employee before you walk out the door and do other stuff. Right. And that's what I mean by investment, right? When you hire somebody, you're not paying them, right? You're investing in them. You're investing in their training. You're investing in their education. And that is up to you. And that's talks, you know, that goes back to when I talked about how it's your failure when they don't succeed. It's because you didn't invest in them uh, in a meaningful way. And so of course you can't walk out the door and be like, oh, here's a 12 inch jointer. I need this eight quarter maple milled down to, you know, whatever. Um, you need to invest in showing them the proper way, the safe way, uh, to handle these things. If you're not comfortable with them using the joiner, that's fine. Maybe you need to do that, but you can teach them how to rip on your saw stop cable saw, like how to get things down to size, how to, how you do your measurement and say, look, as long as this, these boards for our signature table always come out to two inches by an inch and a half, then do it your way, man. I, I believe in you. Um, but like you said, it is your baby. And so the hiring process is really important, I think. And one of the things I like to do in my hiring process is I give a random instruction in my job application. And maybe that's, hey, tell me about your favorite boss or tell me about a problem you overcame in the workplace. And that question is, is maybe 30% to hear their answer, but 70% more to see if they're invested enough in the opportunity to put forth the effort to answer all the questions that you ask. And so that's a good, um, way to pre-qualify people when you're hiring. And then when you meet them, it's important to not just, I think when people first start interviewing, they like to sort of soapbox about their business and here's how our mentality here, we're family, everybody's a team. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, shut up, let the employee talk. And that's how you learn about them. And you learn, you know, is this somebody that you're going to want to work side by side with for the next two years or five years? You know, is this somebody who you think has the ability for problem solving, for, you know, making good decisions? And so ask them questions about themselves, about, you know, previous employment, like, oh, what did you really like about that job? What did you have a tough time with? And you can start to develop a mental picture about how this person likes to be managed and how this person likes to receive direction. And then again, once you hire somebody, it's important to establish that communication is a good thing and that when I when I'm asking about things, it's not to come down on you. It's to solve problems like, okay, well, why did, why did this get messed up? Uh, let's look at the process and what, you know, what do you think employee, how do we solve this problem? And then working together to come up with a solution that helps your business grow in the future and helps these problems not happen. And I think that all comes down to investing and empowering your employee. Let's take a walk down memory lane, if you will, and go back to when you were running a furniture company, because a lot of people listening are in that position or want to be in that position. And they hear you talking about all this business stuff and they get it and they're translating it to their actual 
job and what they are doing in their business. But we don't want to forget that you did run a successful furniture company for a time before you realized there was other things that you wanted to do. So if we can just go back a little bit and you can you can put away the the tool company and the other companies that you had, you, you put them on the back burner and you think, when I had my furniture company, what were some of the things that really stood out that got me to the next level? Because we can't forget that the way you got to your success now with your businesses is on the back of having a successful furniture company that gave you that foundation, not only mentally, but also monetarily. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a good way to put it. Um, I, I think the biggest part was devaluing yourself can be really detrimental. You know, you only have so many hours in the day. And when you're a small furniture company, maybe it's just you building or you and a helper. And you start taking these projects that, you know, the person's like, oh, it's really that expensive. Like, what can you do for me? And you're not including all of your costs, you know, blades and sandpaper and your shop space and all these things. And you end up doing, you know, a two week build where you end up paying the client to do that. And then four months down the road, that same person comes back to you and is like, hey, that was great. I love that piece you made for me. Now, can you make me a table? And it's like, yeah, sure. It's going to cost this much. You're like, oh my God, why is that so expensive? Last time you only charged me this. And suddenly you have all this clientele that expect cheap prices with high quality results. And so it's important to remember if friends and family expect you to do things for free or cheap, they're not your friends or family, right? Like they should want you to make money and they should want you to at least not pay them to do these projects. So it's important to not bog yourself down by devaluing your product so much that you get the work. You're going to be a lot more successful if you, instead of taking a job super cheap so that you can be working, uh, instead going out and doing, like we talked about earlier, you know, some base and case jobs or hanging doors, things that have a very standard rate that is profitable. It's been a while, so I don't know what finished carpenters charge today, but you know, back in my day, it was 55 to 75 an hour. Uh, and that's in a very expensive place to live. I don't know if it's different in other areas of the country, but I knew that that was profitable. So I could go do those things and then wait for that good job to come through. And, you know, eventually I developed, it, it was uh, great with my Christmas light company. Cause I think a lot of those clients had disposable income and they knew me. So I could start telling them about my furniture business. So I got clients that were willing to pay the price, but that's not unique to me. Like there are people in every zip code in this country and in the world who are willing to pay a fair rate for high quality custom furniture. And maybe that's built-ins at first, you know, they just need a built-in desk and a bookcase for their office. But eventually that turns into like the custom pieces that you really love building where you get to be creative and you develop these clientele that trust you and trust your design eye. And so when you say, hey, I think your idea is great, but you know what I would do? How about this? And you draw a sketch in Fusion 360 or on a napkin, whatever works for them. But the point is you got there by not devaluing yourself because if you're working for you know, designers who are saying, hey, you take care of me on this one, don't worry, next client, I'll get you a good profit. And they say that to you every time, oh my gosh, you're wasting your time. And so do the things that can build you. I think it's just been the theme of everything I've said today, that base revenue that you know is profitable, and then you get to do the design and the really cool custom pieces you wanted. And it's important to remember not to devalue yourself early on because then everybody just expects cheap stuff and you're never going to get out of that rut and you're never going to get to those clients that will pay you a fair price because that designer said, oh my God, I got this guy, Jonathan. Oh, he works so cheap and his stuff's so good. And then you go, oh yeah, it'll be you know eight grand for this 12 foot long dining table. And they're like, what? You only charged designer X $1,500 for a 10 foot long dining table last week. You know, And so it's important to retain your value, charge what you're worth, Really look at your overhead. You gotta, you gotta understand your overhead. It's the most important part to your business is understanding your profit and loss statement. You know, like what are what is my monthly expenses? What do I cost? What do I need to make to eat? And then how do I equate that to working 40 hours a week on furniture? Value and having value in yourself is so incredibly important. And I can't put enough exclamation points after that and what you said is so true and 
when you're when you're a furniture maker and you have that skill you sometimes forget that that is a valuable skill to have and being able to build something has value you just have to remember that just because you're good at your job and you can do it well doesn't mean other people can do it well it doesn't mean that other people have those skills and because it comes easy to you it doesn't mean that it comes easy to other people and you always have to remember that and you always have to keep the value on your work because like you said you're going to end up being the really cheap person who does amazing work and that's no way to run a business right and i think that what's important to learn and it only comes with practice is being able to say no and saying look i'm sorry i, I just wouldn't make money at that rate um let me show you the value behind this piece you know this is not ikea furniture this is a custom piece that is going to be something they can pass on to their children uh and i'm going to make this and it's going to be a staple in your home for 50 years so instead of having to rebuy a table every 10 years uh which will cost you twenty thousand dollars over the over the rest of your life you're going to buy this one table and it's going to fit in your home and it's going to be beautiful it's showing that value and showing that you have the capability to complete it, which I think goes back to what we were talking about earlier about credibility. And so value and credibility are so important to building a business. I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk with you about social media and getting your name out on social media, because that's probably where most of the people listening have heard of you first and have jumped into your story and learned about you. And that is a great platform for marketing. And it's a great way to get your name out there on a global scale because, because the internet doesn't have boundaries. Somebody can learn about you all the way across the world and watch your videos and become involved in what you do. But that doesn't necessarily relate to building your business on a micro level. So I wanted to get your opinion as somebody who has been in the social media world for a while, where people should be putting their marketing budget. And I say marketing budget in the terms of yes, money, because some companies have marketing budgets, but also in the time that people are putting in budgeting the time that, that they have in their day. Where do you think a furniture maker starting now should be putting their marketing value in their day? I think you touch on a very important point, which is social media is the most effective form of marketing. That's how I built my business uh, because it allowed me to tell lots of my friends and people I knew in my area, which at the time, you know, before I had a big social media following, of course, my social media following is all local because they're people I know. And so it allows me, I'm telling you the most important thing you can do if you're listening to this is post what you're doing often, post finish pictures, post build pictures, because the build pictures establish value. They show how much work goes into something and the finished pictures show quality. And then on top of that, you need to find the people who would buy furniture and get them to view your page. And there's lots of creative ways to do that. Whether it's an email to an architect or a designer or a local contractor says, hey, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I love what you guys build. Here's my work. I'd love it if you check it out. And even if you'd love to follow me, that'd be really cool. And that gets your name out locally. You need to focus on local. Anybody who thinks followers matter for your local business, they're wrong. Uh, what matters is local followers. And having, like you talked about earlier, Ethan, you know, having somebody across the world in, in Norway follow you and love your stuff, that doesn't do anything for you. But having somebody across the street follow you who sees regularly that you're posting furniture you're building when they need to buy a piece of furniture maybe it's a year from now or two or they have a friend who's like man i'm looking for somebody to build a custom table for me They're like i got the guy it's this local guy i follow him he builds the coolest stuff let me put you in contact so it's finding people locally to follow you and really being active in your community and saying you know hey check out my new stuff check out my new stuff and develop a, a crm list a client management list where you can say you know, here's potential people I think might be interested in my furniture. Every time I post a new picture, I'm going to send them a link to their email to my Instagram and say, hey, check out this table I just finished. Isn't this cool? What do you think of it? 
Uh, and getting local people engaged in your page is so much more important than garnering a large following or you know, posting reels that get 100,000 views. It's getting the people who are your potential clients to look at it. And whatever that takes is the most important effort and budget, as you said, Ethan, it, it, that's the most important use of your time. There's a lot of people out there who have had that aha moment that you had at the beginning of your career where you said furniture, not to steal another one of your businesses, but they hung big Christmas lights around it and lit that word up <laughs> as as big as they could in their mind. And they thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a furniture maker. I want to have a furniture company. And there's also people out there who have their furniture company like you did, and they think something isn't clicking here. What isn't working? Why am I not getting to the level that I think I should be? And this entire episode has been all about advice that you're giving, and I do appreciate that. But for people listening who want to start a furniture company or who already have a company and want to be more successful at it, what's some advice that you could give them? Share your work. Uh, it's really important that, you know, what is marketing? Marketing is telling people about your product. So that is sharing your work, it's showing the people in your area, people who are your potential customers, your work and getting them emotionally involved in it. Everybody talks about that artist friend of theirs that's so good, right? Like art comes up, so like, oh, I have this buddy who maybe paints and he just is the most, and he does this genre that I love. And you just get people emotionally invested in your work and you create things that you're proud of, whatever your style may be, and show people. And then that turns into business. And then it's important when you get those opportunities to value yourself and establish credibility. And I think that if you can do nothing else, it's just share, 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 share. Because if you're too scared, if you're like, oh, the worst, well, the first thing I always tell people is stop pointing out your mistakes. People, whenever people show me like, oh my God, check Jonathan, check out this jewelry box I made using your dovetail jig. Oh, ignore the gaps or don't look at the top, you know, or whatever. Don't, don't tell people, just show them and let them appreciate it. Because 99.9% .9 of people will never see that little gap in your work. They're never going to see the dent you fixed because they don't know what to look for, but they're going to value the art piece as a whole. So share it, be proud of it and get people emotionally invested in it. And I think that's the advice I could give to anybody wanting to grow their business is just be proud of what you do and show it off and the business will come. Why is that such a thing that furniture makers do where furniture maker talking to another furniture maker will always downplay their work and always say, you can't see this, but under that leg hidden under three pieces of wood, hud, hud, <laughs> hid, hidden under under six layers of, of lacquer, I scratched it. I scratched the, the underside of the table with a drill bit by accident and I just covered it up. I, I sanded it down to 220 and not 320. Like, what, like why, what, why, why is that such a thing? And I, we really need to get out of that as a, as a group, as a community of people. And I, I don't know, just, be more positive, be more positive about your work. Right. I think people love, I don't know, self-deprecation maybe. I, I don't have a good answer for it, but I, I think it's important to break that habit because when you give that gift to your mom or your wife or your, your husband, whoever it is that you made this special project for, they will cherish it forever. It'll be one of their most prized possessions and telling them that there's mistakes that they're never going to know. They're never going to see, and they're never going to, they're never going to find that mistake. So there's no reason to tell them. And I think that uh, the self-deprecation destroys the, the value and the beauty of your art. So it's important to just know that there's never been a custom piece ever made, mine included, that didn't have a mistake in it. I am not perfect. And I, that's something I focus on my YouTube channel is showing my mistakes because I think it's so important to, to understand that even people who've been doing this for a long time make them. And that the only difference between me and a beginner is I know how to fix them. You know, I know how to find creative ways to make them disappear. And so when you learn those things, then you're, you're a pro woodworker and you should go out and be proud of your art. I could not have said it better myself. And thank you so much for sharing your positivity, your 
knowledge of the industry, your knowledge of business in general. It has been a true pleasure talking with you today, and I really do appreciate your time and advice that you've shared with everybody listening today. Thanks for having me, Ethan. It really was a pleasure speaking with you. And to anybody listening, best place to reach me and ask questions about business is on Instagram. I'm always here for you. I try and answer as many messages as I can. I, I want to support this community to the best of my ability. So please don't be afraid to reach out. And you have, and I know everybody listening knows that you are a big supporter of the community. And I do want to thank you for that as well. Thank you. And I really appreciate you having me on, Ethan. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.